The following message was recorded Sunday, November 26, 2023. Pastor Ritt continues his series in the book of Acts. This morning we cover Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. We see the beginning of the persecution of the church. Saul and the leaders of the Sanhedrin were deceived in thinking that they knew and understood the word of God. There are many in the church today that are also deceived. Are you? And now, here's Pastor Ritt. I thought we would do something different. Do you remember doing responsive readings? Do you remember that? Yeah. So this morning, I just want to do a responsive reading through Psalm 136. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And so I'm going to read the first part of each verse, and you're going to read the second part. Now, what are you going to say? For his mercy endures forever. Now, you're going to do something a little bit different, okay? I want you to take your right hand, raise it up in the air, and point to heaven. Point to Jesus. His mercy endures forever. That's what we're going to do, okay? Let's try practice that one more time. His mercy endures forever. Okay, Psalm 136. Follow along with me, and you know your part. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn, his mercy endures forever. And brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. To him who struck down the great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. And oh, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever. And rescued us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news? That God's mercy towards us in Christ Jesus will never, ever, 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 ever end. It'll never end. It's eternal. Isn't that wonderful? And what is mercy? Not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting that which we don't deserve, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
We're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 8 this morning. This is where the persecution is beginning in the church. By the way, what is this Sunday? It's the last Sunday of the Christian year. Let's see, we have, we have the civil calendar that we enjoy where the new year would be January 1st, right? And then Israel's religious or sacred calendar, when does that begin? When does their new year begin? Rosh Hashanah. What month is that? Nizan. Nizan. The month of Nizan, right? And it's normally around April time frame, spring of the year, okay? But then what happens next Sunday? Next Sunday is what? I'm sorry? No, Nizan. Passover. Oh, no, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you're right. Rosh Hashanah is in the fall of the year in the month Tishri. Forgive me. You're exactly right. I'm thinking about Passover in spring. But it is in the fall of the year in the month of Tishri, which is when they celebrate their Jewish New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah, right? Uh, or Feast of Trumpets, okay? Now, what is next Sunday? First Sunday of the Christian calendar. First Sunday of the church year. How many of you are familiar with that? How many of you are not familiar with Advent at all? Okay, there's a few of you. Advent is a tradition within the church that started way back in uh, 700 with the church in Germany. And it is a celebration where we are putting our mind, our hearts, and our attention, our focus upon the celebration of the birth of Christ. 40 days before, four weeks before, actually. It's similar to Lent. Lent is in the spring of the year. That's when we're talking about Passover. Lent is a time of preparation for 40 days before what? The celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, both of those celebrations within the church, both Advent, four weeks leading up to the celebration of the Incarnation, and Lent, the 40 days leading up to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, all of those have their roots in a Hebraic practice or in Judaism, ancient Hebraism. In what practice was that? Teshuvah. Teshuvah. And what was Teshuvah? Teshuvah was a 40 days of preparing their hearts, putting their attention upon what God has done, Yahweh, in the celebration of, and it wasn't so much a celebration as it was a time of reflection and deep introspection, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the most holy day in all of Israel, right? And so the 40 days leading up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was called Teshuvah. And they were focusing or returning unto the Lord. That's what Teshuvah means, is to return. Return unto the Lord. So this is a good opportunity for us now to focus, because the church calendar really traces the progress of redemption from the birth of the Savior to his death and resurrection, ascension into heaven. And so the Jews would practice. Now, the last 10 days of that celebration of Teshuvah, what do we call those? The days of awe. The last 10 days were the days of awe. And they would do a lot of fasting, a lot of praying, a lot of meditating upon the word of God, and all of the works and the acts of God. And that's what we should have been doing all this week as we think about all the many, many, many things we're thankful for. But most of all, for his salvation. Amen? So next week, if you're not used to the tradition of Advent... It's celebrating the first four Sundays before Christmas. We will be starting next week. Next week will be the first Sunday of Advent. And if you're new to that tradition, uh, I welcome you to join us. And think about the spiritual significance of it all, not just this rote recitation of this practice. 
because there's so much that is wrote within religion. But last week, we talked about the difference between religion and theology, didn't we? Religion begins with man. Theology begins with God. One, we're talking about a legalistic system by which one would worship the God of their own understanding, whoever that might be. The other is a spiritual relationship with the one true God. <clears throat> Listening to an interview with Vic, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know who he is? He was talking about his faith. He said he is a Hindu. He's a Hindu. But then right after that, he said something that was contradictory. He said he believes in the one true God. Now, can you be a Hindu and believe in the one true God? No, impossible. Impossible. So he has a man-made religion, you see, the God of his own understanding, although he claims to be a Hindu. And there's so many like that today. And we'll talk more about that. Because there's nothing more concerning for you and I than if we were be, to be self-deceived in believing we're worshiping God when we're not. When all we have is religion and not a spiritual relationship with the God who created us, who desires to have a relationship with us. Amen? Yeah. So next week, next week will be Advent. We'll begin the celebration leading up to the incarnation or the birth of Christ. You like Christmas? I love Christmas. Not the commercialism, not the craziness of, that they've made of this day but the, the true emphasis being placed on it. the greatest gift that was ever given to the world for God so loved that he gave Jesus. Amen? Yeah. All right, so we're in the book of Acts, and the persecution has begun in the early church. Uh, let's see, in chapter 4, two of the apostles got arrested. Who was that? Peter and John. Peter and John got arrested. A notable miracle had been performed. They healed that lame man at the gate called Beautiful, the Corinthian gate. Uh, and, and so they were arrested, but the Sanhedrin, uh, the Supreme Court body of Israel, decided just to warn them and tell them, do not teach in this man's name again. You're turning this whole city upside down. Was it upside down or right side up? Yeah, right side up, of course. Okay. But nonetheless, they weren't afraid of them. They went right back to where they were, and they began to preach Jesus again and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everybody received the gospel because it was so wonderful, so magnificent, so life-changing. Is that what happened? No, unfortunately not. But after that, they went back into the temple, began to teach again. Then the governing body, the Supreme Court of Israel, had all of the apostles arrested, right? That was in chapter 5. And what did they do to them? They scourged them. They beat them. Not only did they get a verbal warning, as it was the first time with Peter and John, but this time they gave them a scourging, a beating. And they would remember that beating for quite some time. It would tear the flesh off of the, your back. And they warned them one more time, do not speak in this man's name again. And then the persecution, the heat's turned up a little bit more by the enemy in chapter 6. And this wonderful, godly saint, this crown of the Lord's glory. What's his name? Stephen. Stephen. Stephanos. Crown, right? This crown of the Lord's glory was sharing the truth of God's word. And, and he was a deacon. He was a table waiter, but he was a man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. And God was working so many signs and wonders through this man. Can you imagine? 
He wasn't an elder. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even a B or a C apostle. He was just a table waiter. That gives hope to you and I, doesn't it? That God can do many signs and wonders through us just as well, can he? Yeah. But there was a jealousy that arose, and so they weren't going to threaten alone this time. They weren't just going to scourge him and release him with a warning, but this time the enemy is really going to bring about a persecution. And as we saw last time, what did they do? They stoned him to death. They killed Stephen, beginning the persecution of the church. What is our attitude towards persecution, beloved? A blessing. What else? Be thankful for it. Joy. It's inevitable. You have an expectation of persecution. You should. Because Jesus said to his very own, he said, look, if they hated me, they'll hate you also, because they hated me first. And so that should be our attitude towards persecution. We should expect it, first of all. Number one, expect persecution. Number two, count it all joy when we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. And be thankful that he would find you worthy to share in his shame, to share in that suffering. Yeah, that's the question we did ask ourselves when we begin to be persecuted for whatever reason, for righteousness' sake. We need, Lord, Lord, help us to be worthy of this suffering that you've called me to. Should be our attitude. Turn with me for a minute to uh, Romans chapter 8. Again, on this subject of suffering, Romans chapter 8 and persecution. Now, we're beginning to see the church has always been persecuted since, since the very first martyr, Stephen. The church has been persecuted for almost 2,000 years. Where the persecution has been absent is where? In the West, in the West, in the West, persecution has been absent. There is no reason to persecute when the church has compromised or accommodated with the world. But now, now God is bringing to the surface, right, the true church. Through all of the craziness that's going on, the political correctness, the, the transgender dysphoria madness, uh, the true church is, is really rising to the top, and she will be persecuted. We're seeing a persecution by the state like we never experienced before in the history of this nation, have we? No. The persecution that began in the early church, it was by the governing authorities, by the religious leaders, who were also the political leaders of Israel as well. And now, for the, first, for the first time in our history as Americans, we're going to be persecuted by our government now, by the institutions of the land. And they're legislating in morality and abominations that God declares we should have nothing to do with. And so as you declare the truth and you stand against these things, be comforted with the fact that you will suffer persecution. But what should be our attitude? Romans chapter 8, look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? For if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? What's the answer? No. Shall distress? No. Shall persecution? No. Or famine? No. How come most of you don't realize that? You'd answer this in a negative. It's a no. Famine, no. Or nakedness, no. Or peril, or sword, as it is written. Now listen, here's what we expect. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. For whose sake? For Christ's sake. Yes, we will be persecuted. We can expect it. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Are you a victim? Are you a victim? No. When the persecution comes or the tribulation comes, no matter what the world would throw at us, we are not victims. We are victors. We're victorious in Christ. This is precisely what he's saying here. Now, you need to put that mindset on now. You're not going to feel like a victor. You'll feel like a victim, but you can't be led by your feelings. You've got to be led by what you know to be true, and the word of God is true. And that's what he's saying here. And oh, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, these are demonic forces, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. His mercy endures forever. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news? Yeah. So please put that, wrap this truth around your minds. Because as the days go forward, I believe we're going to experience more and more difficult times if you're truly being all that God desires you to be. If you're being that salt and light for you alone are the salt of the earth. You alone are the light of the world, Jesus said. And if we're truly being salt and light out there in this world, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. The enemy is persecuting two groups of people that he hates more than any other. And who are those two groups? Jews and Christians. Israel and the church. Make no mistake about that. So now in our study in Acts, turn with me. as we're looking at the persecution that's really been taken to another level where Stephen will be murdered, and that murder of Stephen was sanctioned by the state. Don't be surprised at that, right? Let's pick it up where we left off last week shortly in chapter 7. In verse 54, Stephen is sharing how they rejected God's will, God's way, God's man over and over and over again. He goes on and talks about the whole history of Israel, the Israelology of the Bible. He talks about Abraham and Abraham beginning the, 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 the birth of the nation of Israel, or the Himrabi. He talks about how even they rejected Joseph when Joseph came to him. They rejected Moses when Moses came to him. They rejected all that, all of the sacrificial system of Israel that the temple worshipped, that all of the articles in the temple that represented Christ. They rejected the Holy Spirit. They rejected Christ himself. They rejected Stephen's ministry and his witness of Jesus Christ. Yes, he said, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed him with their teeth. 
But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Isn't that wonderful? That Jesus stands to greet every one of us as we make our way into heaven. And then he cried with a loud voice, stopped there, and they stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. Don't confuse me with the truth. <laughs> they screamed. That's why all those Generation Zs would not show up for Thanksgiving dinner. They don't want to be confronted with truth. They want to continue to believe the lie. But they stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, witnesses. Now, you don't think of witnesses being those who would consent to someone's murder. You think of those who would witness for Christ, don't you? No, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we said this is the first mention of the apostle Paul, formerly Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he knelt down, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Mm. Trying to destroy the message by destroying the messengers. They wanted to destroy the message of the one true God through that man, what was his name? John the Baptist, who came from God. And they killed him. Jesus, God incarnate, the son of God, and they killed him. Now, Stephen, witnessing of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit through the signs and wonders that he performed and the way in which the Holy Spirit gave him utterance, gave him the ability to speak and to teach. And they killed him. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the world is at war and always has been and always will be until finally there'll be the death of death, the death of evil, where Satan will be cast where he belongs, into the abyss forever. But right now we recognize that there's a spiritual warfare taking place. Do you understand that? And all that's going on globally, it's a spiritual battle between the seed of the woman and what? The seed of the serpent between those who are gods and those who are not. Every major institution in the world today is controlled by Satan. You need to understand that. This is not his world. Oh, but it's coming, isn't it? Oh, there's a new day coming. You see, this, this has to die off in order for him to bring about the new birth. Just as Israel of old that rejected their own Messiah had to die off the diaspora to be cast and scattered throughout the world. But now, now in our day, in our generation, how many of you were born after 1948? Yeah. So we're the generation that's seen that happen, haven't we? Now, if you're born before 48, you would have wondered, does God really have a future plan for the nation of Israel? But now we see that his plan, and, and the nation of Israel, the old Israel that rejected their Messiah, to die off. And there is a new nation reborn. Can a nation be born in a day, Isaiah declares? And so Israel was one day. Isn't that amazing? And so just as Israel, old, had to die off in order for the new to come about. And we're going to see a new Israel soon. When that last Gentile believes, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and the Holy Spirit, the Ruga Kodesh, the Numa and he falls upon Israel, and they see him whom they have pierced by his will. And mourn, and Israel will be born again. 
this nation, this world, this whole system has to die off in order for God to create the new world he wants to bring about. And there's going to be a new birth, a rebirth of the world. Isn't that wonderful? Is that good news? Yeah. Yes, they stopped their ears. They cast him, stoned him out of the city. The witness laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Did he fight? No. He just yielded himself. How did Jesus win? over evil and sin, over Satan and death. How did he win? By surrendering. How did Stephen win that day? By yielding his life. This, this, is, this is foreign to our understanding, especially as Americans, right? You know, Americans were warring people. Look at our history. Look at, look at the melting pot that we had become, but we, we were a warring nation, you see. But when God brings about his kingdom, it's not going to be through brute force and war, is it, as we understand it. But it's going to be through the mighty weapons that we use, which are prayer, the word of God, truth. Mm -hmm. So now we move into chapter 8, and what we're realizing here is this will be the last opportunity for Jerusalem to receive the love of the truth, that Jesus is their Messiah. This is, what was birthed on Pentecost? Messianic Judaism. Listen, what was birthed by the Holy Spirit on Pentecost was spiritual Messianic Judaism, where Israel was awakened to the fact that Jesus was their Messiah. There was a spiritual birth that took place among the Jews. Messianic Jews are those who are born again, born from the Spirit of God, as De Jesus had declared to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from anew, born anew, born from above. And so spiritual Messianic Judaism is at odds with religious Sadducean Hebraism. Religious Sadducean Hebraism. Why do I say Sadducean? Because the Sadducees were in control. They had complete control. The, the Supreme Court of Israel, they were Sadduceans, right? So you have, you have spiritual messianic Judaism at war versus, right, religious Sadducean Hebraism, religion. Isn't that what's true today? Now, listen, I'm, I'm gonna be, we're going to be talking a lot about self-deception because there's an awful lot of people who are self-deceived. They have religion, but they don't have a spiritual relationship with God. They're truly not born again. So many of my uh, brothers that I admire who uh, are in the reform faith, which just in case you're wondering, no, I'm not a reformer and I'm not a Calvinist, okay? There are some aspects of Calvinism I embrace. There are some aspects of Arminianism I embrace, okay? But what my concern is among those Calvinistic brethren that I know, they seem to be so legalistic. They seem to be more religious than they are spiritual. They seem to be so angry and so judgmental and so legalistic. Is, is that, can you amen to that? But at the same time, at the same time, opposite that, some of my 
Arminianistic brethren so neglect an understanding of the sovereignty and the majesty and the lordship of God that they presume upon the grace of God, where they live in licentiousness, believing that God is going to overlook and forgive every indiscretion. There was one sin that was, the, for which there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament. What, which sin was that? Intentional sin. Intentional, where you presumed upon the grace of God, sinned anyway, knowing that it was wrong. There was, there was no allowance for that. There was no sacrifice for that. And I want to suggest to you, I think that, that those who really embrace the Arminianistic philosophy of Christianity to an extreme position run the risk of presuming upon the grace of God where they don't have any understanding or experience of that grace. There has to be a beautiful balance, you see. And, and we're going to strive together in our journey, in our pilgrimage, in our time together, to find that balance, you see. It's not just the head, it's the heart. But if it's just your head, right? If it's just knowledge, you become stone cold. And if it's just the heart and emotionalism, you become... Fanatical. It has to be a blend of the two, this wonderful balance between the head and the heart. Amen? Yeah. yeah. Well, as we moved into chapter 8, we see that this persecution had taken place, that Stephen has been murdered, and now Saul, Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was from where? What, what group did we talk about previously who were standing against Stephen? The Pharisees, okay, but they, there was also those of the synagogue of the freemen. That's right, the freemen. And then they mentioned the regions from which these freemen were from. One of the regions was Cilicia. Why is that important? Because that's where Tardis was, that's where Paul was from. Paul was of the synagogue of the freemen. He was freeborn Jew, he, a Roman citizen. He didn't have to pay for his citizenship, did he? No. So that's what he's talking about here. And this persecution against predominantly Hellenists at that time, those, those who, were, who were making up the church or the messianic movement that was taking place in Jerusalem were predominantly Hellenists. What was the Hellenists as opposed to the Hebrews? One who was Greek-speaking, they're born outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, and so they were looked upon as second-class citizens. They were persecuted and maligned. And this is going to be the group that's going to suffer the persecution initially, the Hellenists. And if you haven't already, that's beautiful. It's a wonderful tune. But turn off your cell phones. Unless that was from heaven. Was that from heaven, Poppy? <laughs> Morning, Poppy. <laughs> Oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. I hope my cell phone doesn't go off. <laughs> now, Saul consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church that was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Interesting. What is this word scattered? Does anybody have a... Greek note there, telling you what that Greek word is? The diaspora. 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 They're scattered. It's the same word that's being used for scattered in verse 4. God is using the persecution, right, to actually spread 
the truth of the gospel. If you have a fire raging and all of a sudden you decide you're going to put out that fire with a blower, what's going to happen? You're going to spread that fire. You're going to spread sparks everywhere, right? And that's what this persecution is doing. As the winds of persecution are blowing upon the church, these sparks of the truth of the gospel are going to be going everywhere. In chapter 1, in verse 8, Jesus was speaking to them. As Luke is recording, he ends, he picks up in the book of Acts where Luke ends off with Jesus telling them that all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. And he tells them that they're going to, the promise of the Holy Spirit or the promise of the Father will come upon them and that's the person of the Holy Spirit and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you you will be empowered to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem? In Judea? In Samaria? To the ends of the earth. Now like us, you know, we, we just, we like being around each other, don't we? And, and the people we like being around most are the ones we, we really like to spend most of the time with. I was, when I'm not here on a Sunday and I watch the meet and greet on the, on the YouTube channel, I see that you're always greeting each other that you're very comfortable with. You need to get outside of there and greet people that you're not comfortable with, right? Now, the same thing was taking place that they didn't want to leave Jerusalem. Now, the Holy Spirit was birthing the messianic movement in the embrace of Jesus Christ, and there was a love fest going on because they, they sold everything they had. They pulled all of their resources together so that no one had need, no one had want. Everyone was being taken care of. They were loving each other, and there was never more a perfect love within the church than in the first century church. The love that they had for each other was so perfect. And who would want to leave that love? Who would want to abandon that? It was so wonderful, so comforting. It was so compassionate towards one another, so caring for them. That's what the body of Christ should be. And they wouldn't have left unless the persecution began. And so that's what's taking place here, where they're going to be scattered. And this word diaspora, the last part of that word, spora, is where a farmer would scatter seed. Isn't that interesting? That's what he's saying here. Like, like seed, all of the believers in Jesus Christ, predominantly those who are Hellenists, are going to be scattered throughout the known world. And what was the primary language of the world at that time? Greek. Isn't that interesting? God is so intelligent, isn't he? That he would figure that out. That now there were Roman roads, and in Galatians tells us, Paul writes later on, that at a perfect time, God sent his son. Why was it such a perfect time? There was one common language. What was that language? Greek. Greek. Koine Greek, Greek. And there were roads everywhere, and it was safe to travel. Why was that? Rome. The Roman roads. And so God was preparing the way through the Greek language and through the construction of all of those roads throughout Rome and through the empire. The gospel was going to be able to be spread. Isn't that interesting? Persecution never, ever, ever threatens the church, does it? What threatens the church? Affluence, materialism, pleasure, sensuality, worldliness. Yeah, that's what threatens the church. That's why there hasn't been a lot of persecution in the church in the West, because the church has been so worldly. No need for the persecution if you're not really being the church. And that's what we're going to ask ourselves this morning. Last week, when we ended the message, I told you that we were going to be discussing what this week? I'm glad you remember. 
well, you had a lot of turkey, you had all the company, you were traveling. I said, we're going to talk about self-deception. Self-deception. In the historical account that we're reading here now, who was deceived? Israel was deceived, the people, right? That's Israel, the people of Israel were deceived. Who else was deceived? Who? Saul was deceived. Paul, the apostle, self-deceived. The Sanhedrin was deceived. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temples. Stephen spoke about that, and it was true that he said that, that Jesus would destroy this place, the temple. And he said not one stone would be left upon another. When did that occur? 70 AD. Now, I've encouraged you before to go read uh, Josephus' account of that destruction and the carnage, the slaughter. All of the Jews of Jerusalem, they, they ran one place believing they were going to be delivered. Where was that? They ran to the temple. They ran to the temple believing that God was going to save them. The Roman legions were crawling over the top of the bodies as they were slaughtering people at the temple. Several people deep. Killing and killing and killing and killing. And all these Jews erroneously thought they were going to run to the temple for God was going to deliver them. But he didn't deliver them. Why? They didn't have a relationship with God. They had religion. When did God leave the temple? In 586 B.C. We shared, I shared this with you last week. If you go back to Ezekiel, chapter 10, chapter 11, Ezekiel sees the vision of the Ruach HaGodesh, the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. Leave the temple. Leave the city. Leave the people. He repeatedly asked them to return unto him, and he would return unto them, but they refused for centuries, for hundreds of years. And they refused. And so now, now God's presence leaves the temple. And temple worship and practice continues until the temple is destroyed. And, and then when Solomon rebuilt his temple, there's no evidence that the Holy Spirit returned until when? The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And what did the Jews do then? They rejected him. And so listen to me, and listen to me closely. They believed they were in a relationship with God. The people, the religious leaders, Paul himself. They believed they were in a relationship with God that didn't exist through their religious practices, through their own inventions, a God of their own understanding rather than the God of the Bible. And you know, so much of that is true today, beloved. The majority of people that are gathering this morning, and when we look at the number of people in the nation, it's a smaller and smaller percentage each year that are gathering together on a Sunday morning. But the majority of those who are gathering together this morning are unfortunately living in a false sense of spiritual security, much like Israel of old, believing they're in a relationship with God that doesn't really exist. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be hard. I'm just trying to present the facts to you and the truth. How will you know someone is a Christian by the fruit that comes out of their life, the spiritual fruitfulness that it's exhibited. Everybody loves their family, right? 
Everybody serves their family or serves those that they love. But are you really serving Christ? Are you serving the body of Christ? Are you really showing fidelity towards him, to his word, and to his work, his will, and ministering unto his people? My observation since I've been a Christian, 43 years now, is that fewer and fewer really display the spiritual fruit that should be existing if they're in the body of Christ, if they belong to the Lord. But more and more people exemplify a religion of their own making, a God of their own understanding. And it's never been more prevalent than it is today in our day with so much heresy that's going on, so much false doctrine that's being taught. So many who are self-deceived following these heretics the Stephen Furtick's, the Joel Osteen's, the T.D. Jake's, the Joyce Myers. And if I offend you by saying that, then you don't understand the truth. You're not walking in truth. You're not embracing truth. Because these folk and many, many more like them are merchandising the things of God for their own personal gain. They become filthy, filthy rich, live in luxury and opulence while they offer the people who follow them spiritual scraps. Where are the leaders of Hamas? The Qatar. Living in luxury. Who, who set up the Hamas headquarters in Qatar? Does anybody know? Yes. Barack Obama had allowed the Hamas organization to be established in Qatar. Amazing how dark our history is. Tonight, we'll get geopolitical. You come tonight. Not now. So in chapter 8, and I only want to cover the first three verses, because we want to talk about self-deception. Chapter 8, now Saul consented to the death, and great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, the diaspora, throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, fulfilling exactly what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8, that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And now they're scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria, except, except the apostles. Why not the apostles? We don't know why not the apostles. Could be several reasons. It could be they just, you know, the, the captain should go down with the the ship, right? And so maybe they just wanted to stay with the church there in Jerusalem and then suffer whatever was going to take place. We don't know. Maybe it was because they, they most of them were, were Hebrews. They were Jews. They were not Hellenists. And so the persecution hasn't gone to them yet, but it's, it's going to take place. God is going to drive them out of Jerusalem. This is going to end the witness of, of, with regard to the Holy Spirit, with regard to the person of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. It's over. They've rejected him for the last time. I wonder how much more time America has. And we have so overtly been rejecting God and God's will and God's way, haven't we? Think about it. Mm. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. What a contrast, isn't it, between Saul, who consented upon his death, and these other men who were so brave, had so much courage that they would take the body and bury him, give him a proper, proper, proper burial and lament over him. Such love. Will willing to risk their own lives 
Who was that apostle that risked his life? Stayed with Jesus right to the end? John. John, for love's sake. You know, love is such an overused word today, isn't it? Most people, when they talk about love, they're just talking about something that is more emotional or sentimental than it is real love. Dr. Sergio, what would he say all the time? Love in action, action. Love in action. Love is deeds, not words, isn't it? How many times does someone explain, oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. But yet there's no real action that displays their love. I've said to my son on multiple occasions, you don't ever have to wonder whether I love you. My actions indicate that I love you. My actions should indicate my love for Gail and my devotion, although she'd like me to say I love you every day, wouldn't you? But I told you when we got married, and if it changes, I'll let you know. You'll be the first to know. No, but my actions should speak love. Isn't that right? Yeah. And those loving actions should be sacrificial and unconditional. Are you really living for those that you love? Or are you asking them to live for you? See, that's not love. No. But these men, these devout men, were willing to risk their own lives now to take the body of Stephen, who they just admired and adored and loved, and gave him a proper burial. As did Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in taking the body of Christ and displaying their love. What happened to Nicodemus after he made it known that he was a follower of Jesus? He died a pauper. Nicodemus was one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. He was the most, one of the most revered teachers in Jerusalem. But once he embraced Jesus, he was persecuted. There was an economic persecution. There was a social persecution, oh, a relational persecution. And he died a pauper. But did he die a pauper? No. He died a very rich man, didn't he? Yeah. The contrast between those who were so devoted and Saul. Verse 3, but as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off women, men and women, and committing them to prison. Hmm. This is an interesting word, made havoc. Now, what's the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, it uses a similar word in translating Psalm 80. Turn with me there for a moment. Psalm 80. When you look at the Hebrew and translate it into Greek, the translators use a similar word that Paul was raising havoc in the church. Now, in Psalm 80... The psalmist is likening Israel to this beautiful vine that should have been bearing fruit for God, right? But there didn't seem to be any. When you get to Psalm 80, just look up. I just want to make sure you're there. You bring Bibles to church? The beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Psalm 80, verse 13. Look there. The boar out of the woods uproots it. 
the vine, Israel. And the wild beast of the field devours it. So this is the word that's used by the Septuagint translators of this Greek word that's used here that Paul is raising havoc. So what is Paul doing? He's uprooting this vine of God. He's uprooting the church like a wild boar. How many of you hunt wild boar? I know David does, yeah. Boy, those are nasty creatures, aren't they? Yeah. And when they get into an area, you know, I know the farmers out in, in the western part of the country, you know, they, 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 it's, it's legal to hunt those things all year long because they're so destructive. When they get into a farmer's field and they begin to root out all of the plants, they destroy them all the way down to the roots. They dig down, and this is what Paul was doing. He was trying to destroy the church single-handedly, rooting it out like a wild animal, like a boar, (laughs) just devouring everything he could right down into the root so nothing would exist, nothing would survive. That's how zealous he was. Think about some people who are so zealous against the church today. What would happen if suddenly God gave them his grace, where the grace of God fell upon them and they became saved? What a change would take place. Can you imagine? Nancy Pelosi, sanctified. Wow. (laughs) Chuck Schumer, preaching. (laughs) Now listen, 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 this is precisely what happened. The chief persecutor of the church will become the chief persecuted. Look with me for a moment at chapter 9, where Paul is converted. And what takes place in chapter 9? at the conversion of this man who was uprooting the church, trying to destroy the vine of the church completely. Now, chapter 9, chapter 8 describes the salvation of a particular man. Who was that? By Philip. The eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. Chapter 9 describes the salvation of the conversion of Paul, the apostle Paul. Chapter 10 describes the conversion of Cornelius, Cornelius. What's significant about that? Represent, now, how many sons did Noah have? And what were their names? Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? The Ethiopian was a descendant of Ham. Paul was a descendant of Shem. Cornelius was a descendant of? Oh, for God so loved the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? But in chapter 9 in particular for our conversation this morning, we're looking at the salvation of Paul, the transformation of Paul, the chief persecutor of the church, raising havoc in the church. There was persecution throughout all of the church until Paul got apprehended. This is amazing what one man can do, the difference that one life can make. Look at chapter 9 for a minute. Paul's conversion, right? You see that in the chapter? And then Ananias comes, lays hands on him, receives the Holy Spirit. And through the conversion of Paul, through that transformation of this one man's life, look at verse 31 of chapter 9. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. Wow, there's only one, listen, there's only one explanation for what happened in chapter 9. At the end of the chapter, here's we're reading. The conversion of the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? Is one man having such an effect? Hmm. Think about some of the men throughout history who had such an effect on the world for the gospel. Who? Billy Graham. Sure, in our day, a contemporary. Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers. Who? Tyndale. Tyndale. 
Oswald Chambers, Moody. Listen, one life, one life can have such an influence in the world, such a significant impact on the world. Maybe you're that life. Maybe it's your kids. Hey, Michelle, maybe the only reason why you and Nick came to faith is because God wanted to get a hold of Leonardo. If you know Leonardo, you know that God has his hand on that boy. Oh, he came to me months ago, and he came up after the service, and he passed a writ. Do you know God has called me to be a preacher? Really? Yeah, I'm going to be a preacher. Okay. Weeks later, I follow up with him. What are you studying, preacher? I'm studying the book of Revelation with my dad. And he went on to explain to me the book of Revelation. That's amazing. Hey, who knows but God what he wants to do with your children? Who knows but God what he wants to do with your life? Oh, for the longest time, I thought the only reason why God saved me was he wanted to get a hold of my son. And what an influence he's having on his world. That's what I have to ask you, beloved. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ? You're not self-deceived? Then what kind of an influence are you having in your world for the cause of Christ or for the gospel? Back to the text, chapter 8. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging out off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, in some of the reading I've done, it tells me, uh, um, outside of the Bible, obviously, during that period, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was responsible for as many as 10,000 Christians being persecuted or imprisoned or put to 10,000 persecuted or imprisoned or put to death. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of blood to have on your hands. Hmm. But look what happened in his conversion. How many thousands of people have been rescued from their lostness, from sin, from eternal death as a result of the influence of the Apostle Paul? How many books in the New Testament? No, how many books did Paul write of the New Testament? Uh, 13 for certain. And I believe he wrote Hebrews as well, 14. 14 books that have changed the lives of countless millions of people. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Now, we want to talk about self-deception, though, because at this moment in time, Paul is very, very deceived. Paul believes that he's actually committing the will of God by persecuting Christians, doesn't he? The Sanhedrin, most of them, although the religious leaders steeped in their religion believed that they were doing the will of God by stamping out this Nazarene heresy. And the people followed along in mass. Self-deception is the most dangerous thing that you and I can experience. The thing we have to be concerned about more than anything else is, am I genuine? Am I authentic? Am I real in my relationship with God? Or is it all a pretense? It is all hypocrisy. Why do most non-believers not want to come to church? It's full of, and they're absolutely right. The church, particularly in the West, is full of hypocrites, having a different agenda, different motivation for why they come to Christ. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to look at a, a several texts this morning to talk about self-deception. And for the most part, I want the text to speak for itself. So we're just going to read a lot of text on what it means to be self-deceived. 
I don't ever want to be self-deceived, do you? Do you? No, no, that's why I have to ask myself. I, I constantly have to examine myself over and over and over again to see, is there any indication that my faith is genuine? That what I say I believe can be validated by my actions, by who I am. Chapter 7, um, pick it up in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Who said this? Perfect love. Now, whenever you read the words of Jesus, and particularly those things that are more difficult for us to comprehend or to swallow, I want you to understand it comes from the, from the heart of perfect love. Perfect love. Perfect love said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who, in, who go in by it. How many? Many. The majority? Would it be the majority? Yes. 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 Because narrow is the gate and what? Difficult. Difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Now, this, this is the words of the master. This is Jesus. This is perfect love. He said wide and many versus narrow and few. Few. So why would we think it's the many? Do you know that 205 million people claim to be Christian in America? 205 million. You think that's true? Of course it's not true. We wouldn't have anywhere near the, the problems that we have in our society and in our culture and our nation if there were 205 truly saved, born-again believers. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. What do a ravenous wolf want to do? Devour. They're hungry. And what are, they, what are these false prophets hungry for? Power and money, wealth, power, influence. Boy, oh boy, do we, do we not have a plurality of false prophets today? And they, their motivation is what? It doesn't take very long to begin to listen to their messages where they come out with their real motivation. And what is it? Money. Money. Plant that seed faith. Watch yourself get blessed. And I'm amazed at how gullible people are to fall prey to these hucksters, these false prophets, these wolves in sheep's clothing. And why? They're self-deceived. They are deceiving others, and they themselves are deceived. Could that be possible? That we would live lives where we're deceiving others and believing we are something we are not? And being deceived by others who are doing the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I'd say that's a majority of Christian dumb. Yes. You will know them by their spiritual fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorns, bushes, or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. How do I know when someone's really a Christian? Because they said so? No, because I don't listen. I don't listen with my ears. I listen with my eyes. Don't tell me. Show me. Show me you're a Christian. And that's all you have to do. Is you watch a person's life for any length of time at all, you'll know what they love. What do Americans love on Turkey Day besides Turkey? Football. Football. Football.
football. There are three games on. I mean, we are, we are sports mad, aren't we? Most, listen, mo most parents are more concerned about their child's athleticism, sports programs, than they are about their spiritual development, if at all. And their academic development even takes a lower seat than that, doesn't it? But what should we be concerned about? Well, I used to tell my son when he was growing up all the time, son, I'm going I'm to develop the whole man in you, spirit, mind, and body. But it has to be in that priority, beloved. But we have that all upside down, don't we? Hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. I like watching football, especially when the Cowboys win. That's, a, that's America's team. <laughs> no. O.J. Simpson. Wasn't he something to admire on the football field? Wasn't he? A world-class athlete. Very, very, very few people in the world could compare themselves to his, his athleticism. Is that not true? Zero spiritual development. Oh, and then after his football career, what did he decide to do? He was going to go into broadcasting. He wanted to be a broadcaster. He wanted to get into the media. And he was developing himself there. But again, spiritual development. And then what eventually happened? He became a murderer, a murderer. What, what good is all of that, academic or physical, if there is no spiritual? But, beloved, put the emphasis where the emphasis has to be with your children, your grandchildren, with you yourselves, on the spiritual development. Then you're rich beyond your wildest imaginings. And then the academic, and then the physical. For even the Apostle Paul said, physical exercise profiteth little. But I'm going to go cycling tomorrow. But it profiteth little. Not much of that turkey is going to get burned off. But we'll try. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, and inwardly they are ravenous wolves, right? You know them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not those who say, but those who do, right? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, uh, Paul tells us in his apocalyptic literature in Thessalonians that there's a great deception coming upon the world that would deceive even the elect if it were possible, that they will be doing great lying signs and wonders, not uh, unlike the early church. The early church performed signs and wonders for the promotion of the gospel. In the latter days, in the end times, at the last days, Satan will be allowed to perform signs and wonders through his devotees to deceive the world. This is precisely what Jesus is saying here. Lord, Lord, didn't we? Depart from me, you who workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Yet, yet they were allowed to work such signs and lying signs and wonders to deceive even the elect if it were possible. Wouldn't that be amazing? Is that not a frightening thought? So you've got to be careful. You don't base truth upon an experience. You base truth upon the word of God. If your experience conforms to the, conforms to the word of God, praise God. If it doesn't, leave it aside. We don't base our doctrine on experience, and we don't base it on songs.
right? We base our doctrine upon the word of God, what we believe. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23, we're talking about self-deception. Matthew 23, verse 1, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Now they're telling them the truth. They just couldn't live to it, right? Who's the wisest man that ever lived? Couldn't take his own advice. Couldn't take his own advice. Why couldn't Solomon take his advice? It was sound advice. It was godly advice. It was good advice. Why couldn't he take it? All right, no, well, you, 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 it's that woman. It's those women you gave me. No, no, no. Why couldn't he do that? He did not possess the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The only reason you and I can obey the word of God, the only reason why you and I have the ability to glorify God in the way in which we live is we now have the power of God within us. The same power of dunamis that rose Jesus from the dead resides in you and I now. Well, now you have to access it. Do you want it? Or do you want to continue to live like spiritual paupers, like beggars? That's the book of Ephesians, right? The Ephesian church, yeah. Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, yet they were living at such a low plane, a low elementary level spiritually, depriving themselves because they were more enamored with the world than they were with the kingdom. Beloved, you have all of the Holy Spirit you will ever need. Do you understand that? At, your, at, at the time of your conversion, if, the, if you're born again and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you have all of the Holy Spirit you will ever need. The question is, does he have all of you? Does he have all of you? Have you surrendered to him? That's the only difference. Mm. Beware, he says, of these Pharisees. Observe what they teach, but don't do what they do, he says. Do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them upon men's shoulders. But they themselves not move one of their fingers, but all of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad, enlarge their borders and their garments. They love the best seats at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace, to be called men, rabbi, rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. Do not call one another on earth father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is our teacher. That's the Holy Spirit, isn't he? The Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus came not to be served, but to? And so should we. Hey, I have a need. I have a need for somebody who might be skilled or at least have some basic understanding of electric, electricity, electrical wiring, of plumbing. I need somebody to oversee some of the things that need to be done around the chapel here. Uh, it's an unpaid position. Praise the Lord. You've got to volunteer. And you get nothing for it, okay? But I need someone to oversee some of the tasks that need to be done around the chapel here to kind of uh, administer that and make sure things get done in an orderly fashion. I can't be the maintenance guy anymore. It's not my calling, although I would do it. If someone else wants to do this, I'll be the maintenance guy. But I need a maintenance guy or gal. Did you see the tank commander that killed 50 terrorists? 50 terrorists on October 7th and saved an entire village. Did you see any of that? Will history come out on that? What was amazing about that tank commander? Female? Yes. It was a she. 
a she got in her tank, drove on the roads, made her way to the village and killed 50 terrorists. Wow. Saved the village, a she. Watch out for those Israeli girls. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to mess with them. I don't, why did I go there? <laughs> oh, humble yourself, exalt yourself, be a servant, right? Here this girl was willing to risk her life, jumped in that tank, and away she went and saved the community. Are you a servant, or did you come to be served? It's a wonderful thing, you know? I tell people when they go into another area and they're looking for a church, I said, go to that church, go sit down with some of the leadership of the church, the pastor if possible, explain to them your story, and then say, what can I do to help? I'm here to help. What can I do to help? He'll fall off his chair. Why? Because that's not the attitude of most people. Most people come into church and they sit down and they want to be served. They haven't come to serve. They want to be served. Hmm. Is it true they love my teaching, they just don't like me? Is that true? Someone told me that once. Oh, they love your teaching, Pastor Red. They just don't like you. Oh. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Last October was Pastor's Appreciation Month. Uh, thank you, the three of you who gave me cards. I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. I do thank you. Where was I? Uh, let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, look at verse 29. We're talking about self-deception now. Luke eleven twenty-nine. 29. While the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began saying, this is an evil generation. What do we call this? What he's about to do? A controlled burn. <laughs> listen, listen. What's the first part of the text say? The crowds were thickly gathered together. There was a multitude of people gathered together. And every time that occurs, you know what Jesus does? He turns up the heat. He talks about the cost of discipleship. The cost of following Jesus. He does a controlled burn. Now, don't worry. We've got a lot of empty seats. If they start to fill up, I'll do a controlled burn. Yes, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation, condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than the Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, the whole body is full of light. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Why? For the Father up above, he's... So be careful, little eyes, what you see. What's the elephant in the room? Pornography. And women addicted as much as men now. Hmm. The lamp of your life is your eye. This is what he's saying here. Yes, but if your eye is bad, verse 34, your body is full of darkness, verse 35. Therefore, take heed to the light which is in you, that it's not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light. 
As when the bright shining of a lamp you gives its light, and we're called to be the light of the world, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, I don't have time. I don't have time to go into Romans 1 and every other scripture that I wanted to go. I had about a, a half a dozen more scriptures I wanted to share with you. But let's end with what Jeremiah says in his revelation from God of the true condition of the heart of man. What is the condition of the heart of man that Jeremiah declares? The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And who can know it? Now, literally in the Hebrew, he's saying it's incurably wicked. I can be a hypocrite. I can pretend. I can masquerade. Oh, for an hour on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, very easy. But when that woman goes home with me, she'll know who I really am. Because eventually it'll reveal itself, won't it? And I cannot change my heart, nor can you, but there is one who can. And that happens through that born-again experience where our lives are transformed. We are no longer the same person. We talked about that a little bit last week when we were together, didn't we? What, what happened to you? What happened to you? One day you were one way, and then you met him. And he came to dwell within you. And now you're another way. And that's the difference. He changes the heart. But you need to recognize, listen, this is a good time. The year is ending. Look back on the previous year, the Christian year, the previous year, and, and ask yourself, have I become more Christ-like? Am I more of a servant of Jesus? If someone were to look at my life, if Jesus were to examine my life right now, over the last 12 months, what would he really conclude? What would he see? And listen, if you're not happy with what your evaluation would be, now is the time to change. We're beginning a new church year. Next week will be the first Sunday of the Christian calendar. And you get an opportunity. Oh, I love that truth in Lamentations, too, that Jeremiah writes. That every morning, what? His mercies are new. Every morning. Why? I used everything up the day before. I used up that quantity. I used up that kind. I need a new quantity. I need a new type of mercy every single day. But I get on my knees and I say, God, please help me. Help me and give me the ability to live for you, for your glory, Lord, more than I ever have before. May my remaining years be my best years in my service to you, Lord Jesus. That's what I pray. This is our opportunity. Do a self-examination, beloved. And I'm encouraging you in this, and I'm sharing this message because of my concern for you and my concern for myself. I don't want to be found wanting on that day. I don't want him to ever say, depart from me, I never knew you. And you know the implication there when Jesus is talking about that. He's talking about an intimacy of relationship where Abraham knew Sarah and she conceived that intimacy where a man would know a woman in that closest, most intimate relationship where we should know the Lord. Right? The highest essence or the quintessence of the word intercourse is not when a man presses his body into a woman, 
but it's when the Holy Spirit presses his life into mine. Do you understand that? And when that happens, everything changes. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Amen? Shall we stand? Pastor David? Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.